Hey everybody, this is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm stoked that you're here. Hope you guys are doing good amidst our global pandemic. Here in Bend, Oregon, we have three people in the hospital who are sick, which doesn't seem like a pandemic to me, but we are in the midst of a metacrisis, and that is just one small sliver of it. Today, I have the first ever return guest. The first ever return guest to the podcast, a very deserving one, my friend Rich Bartlett. Rich is a Kiwi. He is living in Italy, where they had what was more arguably a kind of more tangible pandemic. But Rich is uh, one of the co-founders of Inspiral, which is this very complex system that is a co-working... I don't know, man. We try our best to describe it in the first podcast where we hosted him. Basically, it is a group of people who... In who encourage one another to do more meaningful work. And it's a pretty damn good way to fight against what he calls bullshit work, which I think so many people are stuck in bullshit work these days. So it's a great counter to that. In this episode, I'm going to kind of drop you in, in the first parts of our conversation where we're just kind of catching up. And we talk extensively about the pros and cons of digital relationships, virtual relationships, and physical relationships. We talk about how that plays into Inspiral. It, we talk about how that plays into our needs being met and whether or not you know the first names of your neighbors. It's a very interesting conversation and I know you guys are going to like it. So without further ado, here's a bit of music and my conversation, second conversation, with a budding friendship in my life with Mr. Rich Bartlett. Enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. 
three and a half years. And so I don't have any stuff, right? Um, but now that we're settling into a place for a while, it's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to get a good microphone. Nice. I'm going to have some headphones. They make me happy. And I'm trying not to uh, over overindulge my consumerist tendencies, but uh, well, I feel good about this. Uh, let me back up your consumerist tendencies by reassuring you that you are the new fucking pirate radio. And the things that we're talking about on platforms like this are actually really important right now because I think so too. CNN is a little bit behind the ball right now. Just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit. And we're going to steal it back. Yeah. Good. And then as Jordan Hall said recently, we're going to steal it back and then burn this motherfucker to the ground. Yeah. He really got on a, on a righteous rant, didn't he? Yeah. I really like that. Yeah. I really like that. And then I read Peter's writing in response to that today. And I was just like, I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Let's do it. It's a real pleasure to see Peter on fire like that. Eh? Like he's, he's really just, I don't know. It's like flames coming out of his fingers at the moment. Uh, seriously. Seriously. Yeah. It's good. Uh, I had him on the podcast and I really like his way of thinking. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. He's totally on fire right now. How's you? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Yeah. Um, I got a number of great podcast interviews lined up for today. We've got a Richard Bartlett to start the day and then a Terry Patton at noon. Oh, amazing. Right. And then another Kiwi this evening. His name is Shane Ward. You ever heard of Shane Ward? I'm afraid not. That's a real shame because it's great to be able to say, like, I know everyone in New Zealand. Right? <laughs> now, he's um, a regenerative ecologist and a soil expert, permaculturalist. And yeah, so. And then I'm Zach that, Stein um, on Saturday. Oh, well. I'm glad you've got Terry after me because he'd be a tough act to follow. Yeah. <laughs> he's, the, he's a Don. <laughs> he is a Don. That's true. He is a Don. Yeah. He's like anybody who's close kin with Ken Wilbur is kind of an OG at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have you read Zach Stein's book, Education in a Time Between Worlds? No. It is so for you, Richard. It is so for you, man. It's like, I think of you, I've been reading it pretty tenaciously and there is so much in there. Um, that makes me think of what you're doing at Inspiral and like both motivationally, like why you would do something like that because he mm. paints a picture of like what the problem is and what the frameworks for thinking about the solutions are as opposed to like what the actual solutions are. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think you'd really enjoy that. He has an amazing oh, pro. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, he's that, that dude's definitely got it. He has definitely got it. I, he has my rapt attention right now. He has my rapt attention. And, uh, yeah. So my girlfriend, she listened to our podcast and just had her mind blown out her ears and has just torn through everything in spiral she can find and has a friend who's, Company came out of Inspiral, um, Namaste Films, 
Matthew Moynihan, not something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I know them. Matthew's great. Yeah. So it's a small world, and who knows? She's gonna be breaking into Inspiral anytime. Who knows? <laughs> she's a power, she's a powerful little unit. So I don't I don't know what her plans are, but when she has them, she tends to kind of get them. Well, my um, you know, my position for quite a few years now has been um to put up quite a fight against people joining in spiral and instead really pouring the energy the other direction and going like, how do we, what do you need to start your own? You know? And, and that's a big curiosity that I have, which is kind of, it's kind of a big question for this, um, this emergent sort of imaginary community mm-hmm. of people that are listening to these podcasts is like, what does it take to activate your agency? Like what's the, what's the missing piece between you and, self-initiating you know claiming that that world that you want to live in and and committing to that like what what's in the way and then like how do we help each other bust through those obstacles yeah i really like that and i think that that's you know in our last conversation we talked about this like obsession with uh scale how everyone's trying to get in spiral to be like 150 million people and the idea of breaking down the barriers to get people to start their own is really how that actually scales. So I think she's actually well, kind of fired seems- up on that idea too, to start her own. That would be a different thing. I'm glad to hear that. I think, I think that's what the, um, the bottleneck is. I think that's the shortage is people that are willing to um, not just to initiate for themselves, but to, to host other people as well. And so like as soon I'm involved with a couple of other sort of, you know, somewhat like proto and spirals. And um, my sense is like, as soon as we see something that's really thriving at the scale of 40 or 50 people, then we should really immediately start thinking about how do we, how do we do a cell division? So that like, it's not, you just bring all the people into the thing that's working, but you go like, now let's keep drilling on this process of how do you start? Yeah. I think the start for something like that is, the hardest part and especially just imagining starting my own or someone in a similar position. I think that's a pretty daunting task. How do you round up a bunch of smart people and get some kind of direction, some kind of vision? It's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. And how much of the, this is the question for me is like how much of that vision can be imported from outside, you know, cause that's part of the work that I'm doing is trying to document um, some of the, the scaffolding of the vision and leaving enough room for people to color in their own dreams into it. And I'm seeing it's working for some groups that are starting their own communities where they're like borrowing my language and that's helping them to get people motivated and be like, look, it's this thing. Um, but to some degree, it's got to be a local production. You know, it's got to be, it's got to emerge from the passions of the people that are involved. So finding that balance, it's a, it's a unknown experiment at the moment. Yeah. And there's a couple of things you said there that just uh, like, I think I have been borrowing your language, the crew and congregation language, as well as the other day I was having a conversation with my father who in November, his mother died and him and his brother are mired in some kind of uh, estate. Mm conflict bullshit right and 
I quoted you when I said that there's a difference between equal and fair. Hmm. And um, <laughs> he agreed. Um, but I've been having conversations with other people too. This, uh, you know, I had Sarah Ness on the podcast. And I've also taken up this like kind of spring project of trying to get garden boxes built in my little neighborhood here. I live in a neighborhood that's like a, just duplex after duplex after duplex. So the density is relatively high for around here and no one owns where the land that they live on. It's all property management between the tenant and the actual owner. So there's a bunch of bureaucratic red tape and I have just found a couple of spots that, would work great. And so just knocking on doors and asking people if they're interested. And I've realized that the work in this is less about the garden boxes and more about knocking on the door. It's more about like a person opening the door and me being like, hi, I'm Ari. I, I live right there. I'm your neighbor. We've never met. You've lived here for five years? Oh, wow. I've lived here for eight years. Crazy how I don't know your first name. That is crazy. That is a problem. That is a problem. And yesterday I was like just walking through my neighborhood and I just had this like kind of like almost scary realization that like when shit really hits the fan, like the people that you're geographically close to are the people you're stuck with. Like when the gas pumps turn off and my truck won't run, it's like, we're, we're kind of like in this together, just in this on my block. And so between the things that Sarah is talking about of just like frameworks and language that help us to connect with the people around us in general and the inspiral concept that I'll butcher by saying that it's like a, based in a similar level of emotional and uh, like vulnerability and openness as well as some kind of financial stake. Um, this like little garden project has been like a strange little like bridge because I didn't start it with the idea that it would be some kind of community building thing. I just, my idea was that if I just put in the legwork and, sourced the supplies and filled up these garden boxes and put starts in them, then I could just knock on doors and be like, Hey, that's your garden box now. Like if you just water it, there's going to be kale coming out of your ears and you can just have as much food as you want. Uh, that was kind of my idea. But now even the idea of like knocking on the door and being like, Hey, can you water this every day? I like, Hey, you might want to ask your neighbor if they'll water it every other day. And like, the fragility that I have seen in the abstract in the last month in our systems mm -hmm. and particularly in our food supply has like come pretty full circle and have, has landed in my fucking neighborhood, which is both terrifying and invigorating. Um, so yeah, that's, no, really that's cool. That's, that's really good to my, hear, man. Yeah. Because this has been the thing that's puzzling me in all these interesting podcasts that I'm um, listening to and occasionally invited to participate in. It's like there's a lot of people sort of dreaming up an alternative kind of civilization, and it's really attractive. You know, it's really intellectually stimulating to go and 
dream up these different ways of being. But the space between here and there is very uncharted territory. And, and what you're doing sounds like precisely, precisely what it should look like, you know? Yeah. I, yesterday walking through the neighborhood, just had the, like this stoned realization that hit me in the head that was like, oh my God, it's not about the food. It's about the community building. It's like literally just about the community building. And there's two days ago, I had a, a guy on this podcast called, his name is Howard Rheingold. And he's like a, he's, you know, Howard, he's another OG. <laughs> he's a super OG man. He wrote his first book on virtual communities the year before I was born. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I've kind of grown up in this, in this time where like, Oh, community. Yeah. Like you can connect with paraglide pilots across the world. You can connect with highliners across the world. It's like this virtual community and you know, community building in that sense has been something more ethereal. And yeah. now I'm like, Oh my God, like we need some community building between neighbors. Like there is yeah. some kind of geographical importance to our needs being met, especially our most basic needs that is impossible to do over the internet. Right. You don't like, you can't just like PayPal somebody a bunch of kale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's a different kind of gift economy that works within this kind of geography. And yeah, that was a realization that hit me in the head pretty hard. I recently watched this, uh, this documentary called living the change. And it basically it's all Kiwis. It's all your buddies. It's all your, your countrymen. And it's all these people who are doing really amazing things. This is how I find, found this guy, Shane Ward, this ecologist. And it's like narrated by Charles Eisenstein and this guy, Shane Ward. And it's basically like stories of all these Kiwis who are permaculturalists, who are doing these food forests, right? where just like everything grows together, all these like perennial plants and all the birds and the bees and everything. It's amazing. As well as these, like, I would say smaller things like um, a repair cafe where like mm. once a quarter, people just like volunteer their time. Like an appliance guy just comes and sits there and people just bring their broken appliances so they don't go to the landfill. They just like fix the blender instead of throwing it away. And um, this other thing where like, it's a school that teaches all the children how to grow all the food and then how to cook the food. And it's like, wow, like the, there is such a need right now. I am seeing more clearly that like the virtual communities were strongly defended by Howard Rheingold. He says, no, it's not like, it's not a problem. It's like, it might be so good that we have created a lack in other areas that we actually need a geographically tied community building as well. Yeah. And so yeah. it actually rose some questions for me about Inspiral and um, like what the geographical element of Inspiral has been and, and whether or not that's like a huge problem. I, mm. 
I feel like I just have like such a nebulous, a nebulous understanding of Inspiral and I'm not sure what parts of my understanding I've just like created or filled in. But I think I read that you guys like annually you do a get together. Like everyone yeah. physically is together at least one time of year. And yeah. I like the idea that you guys use rhythms as opposed to scheduling because scheduling is a distraction. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Um, so you guys are all lunatics howling under the full moon to get your work done, which is fun. Uh, <laughs> um, but tell me what the geo the geographical mm. element in in spiral is. Mm. Um, your nebulous idea is probably at least as accurate as it is for anyone that's part of Inspiral. Like it's just it's just a big confusing puzzle uh, <laughs> because it's it's not trying to be. It's not trying to be one thing. It's trying to be a hundred things at once. And, you know, obviously that's inefficient and ineffective in some ways, but it's also, it's, it's the most extraordinary garden. It's like a permaculture garden where someone who doesn't know what they're looking at goes like, what is this mess? Like you've just got a whole bunch of random shit everywhere. And say, no, 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 there's actually, there's, there's a method to the madness. Um, so not understanding it is, is a feature, not a bug. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the geography is important. And um, last time we talked a bit about the, the, the indigenous component, you know, like that there's a, there's a historical, cultural, political sort of context in New Zealand that uh, I really attribute a lot of the inspiral ways have, have been informed by that con context. Um, and even, you know, to an extent, the more that I listen to, you know, like decolonial thinkers and indigenous thinkers and stuff, the more I attribute the intelligence of the land and all of the other creatures on the land um, as, yeah, sources of, of wholeness and wisdom and guidance that inform what we're doing. You know, like I don't think it's just us little human brains in the mix. I think there's a lot more going on. Um, so there's all of that kind of somewhat esoteric um, mythology or um, metaphysics, depending how you think about it. Um, but then there's the more practical stuff. So yeah, like the gathering is crucial and it's not that, um, it's not that every, everyone comes, but that, the that there's this recurrent pulse and we actually have them twice a year. So the big one in summer is like the big celebration. It's usually between sort of 60 and a hundred people will be there. Um, and we do different versions, but it's basically like a week, you know, and different some of it's more distributed and some of it's all spending. We usually spend at least three days all together in one space where you're not leaving. And that, that has been absolutely essential having that, having that recurring rhythm and that, um, the ritual of it, you know, like that, that this is something it's kind of, um, I think maybe in our last conversation, I, I gave the metaphor of like a funeral, you know, like there's this, there's a ritual to a funeral and, and you know, as you arrive that, there's some different expectations of your behavior and what's going to happen and that sort of thing. Um, same for a wedding, um, same for Easter Sunday or whatever, if you're into that sort of thing um, or Mardi Gras or something, you know, like that. there's this, this context of tradition and ritual that happens as part of the calendar and you don't really question it. You're just excited about it and you go with it. And that, yeah, that's really been essential for us is having this, this ritual space where, um, there's a lot of celebration. There's a lot of making new friends. There's a lot of reflection. So like for me, 
I kind of measure my life in terms of how many of these inspiral retreats I've been to, you know, it's like, Oh, another year has passed or another six months. Cause then we also have the winter one and the winter one's a lot smaller. It's usually like 30 people or something. Um, and it's much more introspective and more like, it's more like a cuddle puddle, less like a innovation camp. <laughs> you know, people are just like, well, <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that, that face-to-face time is essential, has been essential. Um, because what we're trying to do is grow trust. And if you've ever been to an exquisite gathering, you know that the content has got very little to do with it. And it's all the incidental stuff of like, yeah, you're sharing a whiskey with someone at two in the morning or, um, you know, being in the kitchen and making breakfast together and, and feeding everyone, or someone's got a ukulele and you pick up a new song from them. Or it's like, that's the stuff that that's where the trust comes in. It's like this mammal stuff, you know? <laughs> Um, not so much the, oh, this person said this great thing and it gave me the idea I needed for my project. That's quite secondary to me. Um, and that has meant that there's a real sense of geographical center in Inspiral, which is in Wellington, but there's not a literal center, you know, like there's no, there's no property that we own. Um, there are, there has been a sequence of different co-working spaces at the moment. I think there's basically two or maybe three co-working spaces that are full of inspiral people. There's a lot of just in New Zealand, that's normal to live in shared housing. So like quite a lot of people sort of from the time they leave home until they get married and have kids that it's really common to live in shared housing of like five or six people in a co-op house. So a lot of people in inspiral will be in, they might live with one or two other inspiral people and one or two others. It's pretty common, but then there's plenty of people that, yeah, they just have their families and um, they mostly participate online and then come to this, come to this big gathering every year. Um, But to say all that really, it doesn't do justice to the whole story because there really is a good fraction of people that don't live in New Zealand. And, um, and, and that's been a, it's, it's part of the mess. It's part of the joy of it because it really feels that we're plugged into a global a global source of connections and inspiration and stuff. Um, but now that I don't live in New Zealand, you know, now I'm in Italy, I do feel a bit like a second rate citizen in a sense, you know, that there is a home base and I'm far from it, even though we don't literally physically have a home base and it's a bit, yeah, it's a little bit mysterious. And the other mystery is that how do we create multiple bases? So that's kind of the pro well, that was the project for this year was, um, we were going to be running a bunch of events in, in Europe to see if we can activate. There's at least 20 something people here distributed around Europe that are already part of Inspiral. So we thought, can we activate them in a sense of feeling more like we've got our own home base over here. And then from that place, start inviting more people in. Um, and of course the travel restrictions and health concerns have, have changed that plan. But I have said, you know, like it, it has in the past tense, it has been really important to have these gatherings, but I don't want to mythologize them too hard and say, that's the only way. And I, I do want to experiment with how do we, how do we forge those kind of really deep bonds without, without being able to touch each other, you know, like without smelling each other's pheromones or having that, um, you know, when you meet someone and you just say, ah, it's my long lost brother. And you, you need to put your, your hand over their shoulders to like really feel like you're cementing that bond. Like I'm, I'm really curious about how much of that we can reproduce without the physical touch. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that we're all kind of mired in that question right now, whether that's, you know, not as 
not that we're all in, in spirals, but just like, how do we maintain the depths of our connections without the physical element? And, you know, there's no, I, I mean, I don't think that there's any um, substitute for some of the less conscious ways that our bodies even connect just like you mentioned like smelling pheromones like how does that tie into the bonds that we create like we know that you smell someone's pheromones and your mind within like a 64th of a second determines if it thinks the smell is pleasant or not you know like there's these just myriad unconscious decisions that our monkey brains make about another person on these things and <clears throat> and for me, like I am so hyper physical and so chummy. Like I pat strangers on the back and I'm just like, I hug and fake punch and just like, I'm just so chummy. Right. And so that's been like a, an interesting thing for me. And, and, um, the, I guess it brings up two things for me. One, how do we recreate the bonds that we can have virtually? How do we remove ourselves from one another and still build that? I think that's a huge, huge, huge uphill battle. Like that's a, it's really tough. It's really tough just from our biological evolution as well as our own just upbringing and having people in person. Um, that's a, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. It's, it's something that we're doing, right? We're like actively doing it all the time. And your and I's friendship is a testament to that, mm -hmm. but how far does that actually go? Like when shit hits the fan, like what is the functional aptitude of our relationship when like I need help? Um, like, I think that in the context of like emotional help, friendship, support, encouragement, I think that a virtual relationship has a high bandwidth. But there are so many things that are not just that, you know, like, hey, Rich, I'm out. I can't get back to my house. I need you to water the plants. I need you to water the plants, Rich. Oh, what? You're in Italy? Come on. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. Uh, it's like there are other things that we need from each other. There's other types of support that we need. And I think that, um, I think that staying connected to the people that we love in times where we can't go be with them physically, I think that virtual relationships have a high bandwidth. But as far as building really deep relationships that have a, I don't know, what am I getting at here? I feel like I'm getting at, there's like some kind of delineation between our mental, cognitive, intellectual, emotional, spiritual needs that could hypothetically be met by a virtual relationship. And there are physical needs. There are the chores, the food, the housing, the shelter, the physical connection, the any of these things that are more concrete, more tangible, 
as we come into this time, it seems like the virtual relationships are there. And I feel like people transitioned, you know, like Zoom had 10 million daily users and jumped to 200 million daily users in the course of three days or something, you know? It's like, I think that people were already primed. We were already like up to speed on how to make this transition between our physical relationships and like maintaining them virtually. I feel like we were already like, there wasn't a huge lag time there. But I think that the thing that we're actually really far behind on is like the fact that I don't know the first names of my neighbors. Well, maybe there's an opportunity though that, um, that the digital space, because no one, no one expects, I don't think anyone seriously expects that your digital connections are going to give you the same things that you get from physical connections. Um, that's a bit more unexpected and a little bit more undefined territory that we don't have these pre-existing, like, this is what the space is for that maybe it's allows people to experiment with different behaviors. And, you know, like the other day I was on a call with people that I know reasonably well, admittedly, actually, no, there was another one before that where I didn't, I didn't really know most of the people. And it was like a long call. We had to do a lot of work together with a big group of people. And, um, and I was hosting and I asked, can someone lead some kind of energizer? Cause we've been sitting down for 90 minutes. Like, can you get our bodies energized? And they just started streaming music and started dancing and got everyone dancing. And it was so good. Like, I like, I mean, I enjoy dancing, but sometimes it's, it feels awkward, you know, like to be in a room, especially with people you don't really know very well. And it's like, oh, I feel this pressure or something, but something about being in my own space, which is mine. And um, I can basically ignore the camera or like get out of, you know, out of focus or out of view. And somehow it, it gave me permission to be more creative with my body than I would if we were in physical space. And the same with like some of the conversations that I've been dropping into, like Peter's thing with the Stoa, um, that because I know that it's a 60 minute or a 90 minute session and there's going to be a lot of strangers there and we're kind of up for some kind of connection and conversation. And then at the end I get to just close the lid and it's done. Like I'm much more likely to go to a thing like that online than I am in face to face when I have to think about transport and what if it feels really awkward and what if I get triggered or, you know, like, it feels a lot safer to do it um, in this space. So maybe we can use this as an, as a gym, you know, and start working out some different relational practices. Mm. And then when it comes to like your neighbors or whatever, it's like, Oh, this is not so scary. This is not so intimidating. This is like being on the computer, but actually it's nicer because you can have carrots and kale. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting that you say that you're more likely to experiment and that was something that you brought to the Stoa that I was there with you. And we kind of did some experimental breakout groups and which ended up being super helpful for me. Hmm. And so maybe you're right. That is a silver lining in this cloud that we are. You go ahead. You know, what's happening there is um, there's a kind of, there's a kind of self-awareness that happens in this digital space because it's unfamiliar. So like when I say we're going to meet on zoom and then we're going to do this thing for 20 minutes and then you're going to be in breakout rooms for 20 minutes and then you're going to come back and blah, blah, blah. like there's no pre-existing norms there. There's nothing to take for granted. You really notice all of the architecture and the bits that bump into and the bits that work. 
And one of the things that I'm often doing with my work with groups is like helping them to become more self-aware of the architecture they're already living in. Um, and, and showing them that it's actually really easy to, to renovate your house. You know, like you can just try some different, you can say like, oh, how about instead of just having a free form conversation, we stop, we enjoy some silence and then we go around one by one and we're really going to listen to each other. And I'll give you a three minute timer to share what you got, you know, like some extremely simple technique for shifting the way that the conversation is happening can be really profound for people, really, really profound. Like just to shift out of the habitual modes of communicating and adopt something different. And this will be what Sarah Ness is talking about too, I'm sure. And once you've got that muscle of like, oh, it's like the fish discovering that they're in water, you know, it's like, ah, oh, there's water. And like, I can, I can have some influence over it, you know, like I can warm it up or make it deeper or introduce a current of some kind. Like it's not something that just happens to me, you know, communication doesn't just happen to me. Group culture doesn't just happen to me. Like I can be a, um, an active participant and a constructor and I can, I can shape this experience and it's mine to, it's mine to make. Okay. I want I you to, some, yeah, go. <laughs> I, I want you to speculate on what it is that keeps us from doing that. What is it that keeps us afraid to experiment with the architecture of our communication? I mean, afraid is, is a big word. Um, there could very well be some fear in there. I suspect it's the thing that comes up more for me rather than being afraid of experimenting is just a lack of awareness, like not, not knowing that it's an option, not seeing it. So like when we started our first company, the, the uh, Lumio, one of the things that was really distinctive about us was that we had a, a, an open door meeting every Friday at the same time. And people knew that if they show up, if they're interested in Inspiral, that it was like, someone would show up with any kind of skills and they were kind of interested in how do I plug into Inspiral for two or three years. The answer was, look, Friday mornings, there's this meeting with the Lumio team, go hang out with them, see if, see if anything sparked. And most of what happened in that space was people would come out and be like, wow, I've never seen a meeting like that. And I didn't understand what they were responding to, but it was simply that we had a practice of like genuine sharing, genuine listening, you know, like compassionate attention, um, people speaking from the heart, being productive, being really efficient, like getting tasks done and, and reviewing them. And like that we had a certain culture, a certain way of interacting with each other that came naturally to us, but was really unfamiliar to most people because most people had been in really toxic environments and, you know, used to being in environments where there's like one person calling the shots or it's kind of tense and no one really likes each other, or they've got this mask of professionalism where they like have to, keep everything really clenched and just, mm. oh, my role is this and I'll stick to that. Um, and when they, yeah, a lot of people were just basically shocked like, wow, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know this was an option. And, and if you think about like what we see on TV, for instance, there's no TV programs which are about collaboration, um, like about collaboration. Sometimes they'll show some collaboration, but they're not about collaboration. You know, they're not about how groups work. That's not really, I, I, I'm going to keep pu pushing this idea onto the airwaves. I really want to have something that's like queer eye, but instead of going into <laughs> someone's life and like giving them some self-confidence and some style, it goes to a group and help them with their dysfunctions because it's not that difficult. It's the same as like good fashion. It's not that hard. You just need a model. You need someone that's going to give you some encouragement, some mentorship, you know, um, and something to look at to copy. 
I love and, that. <laughs> and it's just this missing piece where we don't, um, yeah. In, in traditional cultures, like in a, in a, say an indigenous culture or like an old religion or something like that, there is a whole um, architecture that's really comprehensive, you know, like this is what we do when someone dies. This is what we do when it's someone's birthday or this is what we do on this day of the month or something. Um, but I feel like in, in sort of Western globalist, internationalist kind of culture, a lot of those cultural forms are just disintegrating and there's kind of nothing to take its place. Um, so people don't really know what they're missing. I think that's it. And then once they get a taste of it, I mean, this is part of the reason that things like Burning Man are so exciting. It's because, wow, I go and just step into a different kind of, a different culture for a second. And then suddenly, you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You go back into your normal life and you're like, wait a minute, this sucks. Why are we communicating this way? Like, how come I don't have agency in my workplace or how come I've got this really strained relationship with my partner or whatever? And you can't, you can't put it back, back in the box once you've seen it. Mm. I made a film, I made a travel film for my trip to Italy, the Dolomites. And I said in the end of it that the best part of traveling is that by seeing another culture, you actually are illuminated to your own culture, your own yeah. world, your own life. Yeah. Hmm. And Italy's a great example because you can go to just about any town in Italy. And at this time of day, just before sunset, you know, like, everyone's going to be out for their passeggiata and they're going to be walking around and um, they're not just walking in, in like you would do where I'm from in New Zealand, you know, which is like a quiet private pursuit. It's like you're actually roving all of the communities out and you're roving around connecting with each other and checking in with each other. And there are these great big clusters of old people that are hanging out and having a big yarn and like passing a drink around and like same in Spain, you know, like there's just so much more, um, social fabric is the social fabric is so much more obvious than it is in, in more Northern and Western places. Uh, that once you see that you go home and you're like, what are we, what are we missing? You know, why are we all on these, like you're saying in your duplexes, like why are we all got these fences and there's like almost no interaction in the neighborhood. That's crazy. Yeah. I think it's, um, a wake up call. I think it's a wake up call that, uh, that, virtual communities aren't going to replace geographic communities. They can definitely, they have their place and they are incredibly supportive. The example that Rheingold kept using was like, if you have a rare disease and it's like mm -hmm. one in a million that people have this and online, bang, you're like in the midst of a group of 250 people who all have the same disease. And you're like, wow, I guess it's incredible. So there's definitely utility in the virtual community, but I feel like we have likely exchanged so much of our physical community with virtual community to a fault. And as shit hits the fan, I think we're going to have to go back and build the physical communities back up. Yeah. I, I still, there's a part of me that wants to hold a candle for the virtual, you know, like that, that, um, I mean, I'm not really into globally distributed virtual community, but regionally distributed local community, I mean, global community, you know, like the, this, there's the different, there's different orders of magnitude. So like 
I'm quite into the idea, which I'm, I mean, I'm committed to for, the, for at least the next year or so of cultivating really deep trusting relationships with people all across Europe, because it's really easy to jump on a train and go and spend a week together in the summertime and, and cement that with, with the face to face and then go back to our local places again. And, and yeah, I'm not expecting them to be there for me. Um, yeah. Like you say, when there's no more gas left for the truck, but the experiences that we're having are really like, I get to take them with me, you know, like the, the, the self-awareness that I cultivate in relationship with those people, for instance, that, that, that stays with me forever. So that there is some nuance to it, I guess, but I hear what you're saying that the, especially in difficult times, you really see how much you need your neighborhood. And if you're putting energy into the virtual, it's probably energy that you're not putting into the local. And at the moment, I have a good excuse because I don't speak the language that all the other local people do. Um, but even still, I have some resistance, you know, like even, even when I was living back in New Zealand where I speak the language and it's very familiar to me, like there's still, I've got this like, oh, I feel awkward or a bit ashamed or I don't want to take a risk or maybe, maybe there's already a thing happening and I don't know about it because I'm not cool enough or, you know, like all these kind of weird resistances and hangups to doing it. Yeah, and as you say that, it brings up something that I that crossed my consciousness as you were as I asked you what the things were that stopped us from exploring different architectures in our communication. I think the things in me that stop that are this: like, um, I'm reluctant to step in as some kind of leader in a new architecture in a new communication game and there's also a feeling that i would be juvenile like that we're mm -hmm. playing some kind of kindergarten game like we've matured as adults and now we have like these ways that we communicate and to try to reinvent the wheel is like being the kindergarten teacher to sit me and my friends down and being like oh now we're gonna try communicating like this and sharing our feelings and and um which like even the conversation i had with sarah ness like it, there's certain elements of that that are definitely on my edge of what i'm comfortable being the mouthpiece for and yeah. i'm definitely leaning into that a lot lately because i see this um i see this thread this is like a really strong thread that is woven into a lot of progressive and um really like inspiring and exciting different ways of doing things especially in the midst of uh, a time between worlds right um yeah and the other thing for me is if i look back at my life i started my my life started when i started skiing in a way that was addictive essentially mm. in a way that i couldn't get enough of i i skied 150 days a year um and big jumps are definitely my thing and so with a big jump there is this potential there is this opportunity and there is also so much reality like you're going to go off of the thing and you're going to crash or you're going to land like the trick is going to go perfectly or it's not 
and there's like this, this timing to it, right? Like you go up to it, you ski in towards the jump and you're like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Am I going to try it? Am I going to try it? Am I going to try it? Three, two, one, make your decision right now. And like, here it is. It's like, it was a really beautiful iterative reality to going off of ski jumps and like doing a flip. That transpired into learning how to highline and like highlining one inch webbing across the void. A lot of times I haven't seen both sides of the line before I go out there. Like I'm literally trusting my friend who's tied the rope on the other side, like with my life. Absolutely. 100% with my life. In skiing, we go into avalanche terrain. I go skiing down and I get buried in an avalanche. My life is like literally in my friend's hands. Paragliding, we go flying into like remote mountains where your level of self-reliance is extremely high. And the only other thread that you have tying you to like your only other lifeline is your friends. Like search and rescue as, as good as their intentions are just, they just don't have the ability or resources to come save you in those kinds of situations. So I have been created by geographical relationships that are at a level of bandwidth and depth that are literally, I put my life on them like every single day. It is my life and it is your life. And it's like, okay, you want to go rig a high line? Yes. Like my life and your life. Ready? Here we go. And it's like, when you go skiing in the back country, you go on top of big mountains. It's like, we are, there is a, there is something about that type of experience that curates a bond that we will have a hard time recreating through a virtual community. There is, there is a risk like existentially. And there is also like a background base of knowledge and competence that we vet each other through. Like you don't just take anyone into the back country. Like yeah. if, like you pick your partners wise, yeah. there's like an exclusive, there's like an exclusivity to it, which is another thing that I've noticed in Inspiral that I've actually been hearing a lot of lately. That's like, Hey, we might need to like leave social media and leave the more diffuse relationships and focus on these. Like we need a crew. Like most, I, I'm realizing that most people don't have crews. Yeah. Like their family of origin is like the shittiest crew and it's what they're stuck with. And they're like, I guess this is my crew and I have to live my life with my family of origin who abused me and neglected me and demeaned me my entire life. Right. And it's like, Oh man. Okay. Most people don't have this like three to eight to 12 person, like really close, deep, intimate, emotional connection with people. And these relationships that I've curated over the years with my adventure partners in whatever uh, sport that we're doing are extremely high bandwidth, extremely high bandwidth. And they're not all, you know, like I have friends who are in Italy who are like some of my close, close adventure partners who like we have really strong ties because of that. And the things that we have gone through, even though they're not like apocalyptic or cataclysmic 
trials. They're just like challenges, you know, and we bit off the challenges ourselves, but it's like, we still endured something together. And that's also a thread that I've been kind of tuning into is the, another silver lining of the big coronavirus cloud is that we are collectively enduring something. And on the other side of this, the camaraderie, the like connection, the depth of our relationship, just with your neighbor, who's like, like summer's here and we're like, dude, you survived. <laughs> you made it, man. Like we did it. We're not dead. Nice. We didn't get sick. You know, it's like there is some kind of thing that we're enduring right now that I am hopeful that people can have just a taste of this kind of camaraderie that I've built my life around. Mm. As you're describing these sports, what strikes me is that they're, um, they're only adventurous because of the vulnerability. You know, like if you were safe the whole time, what's the point? Why would you do a high line? You do a low line, you know, like it's <laughs> the whole point of it is that there's some risk. And, um, and it just makes you wonder, you know, because these kind of adventure sports are like, they're kind of cool in a way, like Red Bull's going to sponsor you or whoever. Um, and there's a, there's this kind of like allure to them. And I'm like, what about the vulnerability of these kind of, like you're saying, it feels like kindergarten, but the vulnerability of talking about your feelings, you know, that kind of risk of, of exposing who you really are, what you really think and feel. I wonder if there's a way to do a, a Red Bull kind of branding <laughs> on talking about your feelings. Circling. Make it sport. <laughs> Extreme circling. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to sit crisscross applesauce. Oh, James Smith. He's back up. This guy has deep shares. This guy has deep shares. Look at Mona. Mona is listening. Man, she is one of the top listeners out today. She's really, she's sponsored. She's got her own brand of headphones because she's so good at listening. No, that's funny. Um, it's funny you say that because honestly, I've felt it in myself because like in this coronavirus thing, I'm just like some little like switch went off inside of me that was like, courage, share your real thoughts, be like, all right, it's time. Like, and on some levels, I've, I'm a pretty open book in general. Um, and on other levels, I, there's things that I like to not share as vulnerably. And so I, I have felt that in myself. I felt like, you know, the experience of a vulnerability hangover, the experience of like, like the other day I made a paragliding tutorial video that's basically saying that the most important thing to do before you launch your paraglider is to like be vulnerable with yourself and with other people. Sarah Ness gave this great example of how shell oil rig workers were dying. And so they hired vulnerability and emotional intelligence training to come on the oil rig. So big burly bearded oil covered dudes could talk about their feelings with each other and their uh, fatalities drop precipitously. Right. I am feeling there is like some excitement. There is some like risk. There is something that's like, uh, potentially addictive about uh, about an emotional risk that is you know compared to to this physical risk there's also the um how do you say it like 
there's context as well. You know, like there's kind of like it's, it's, it's a little bit like you're saying with you're choosing the people that you're going to go to the back country with. Um, I think with the vulnerability, it really, it really helps to choose who you're doing it with, you know, and not just, not just throwing. And this is different for different people, but I think especially, at least for my politics, like as someone who is born into a reasonably high privileged state, like I don't think it's very helpful for me to get on Twitter and just say any old thing that comes to my mind, you know, like, um, I think it's good to have private spaces to like develop my thinking and to be, to, I think it's, I think that you, you always need spaces where you're not censoring yourself, but that those don't have to be public and that you can explore ideas and things and get them out and get some feedback from trusted people and go like, you know, um, if I'm having some kind of, some kind of confusing idea about, um, I get that sexism is a problem, but I don't really get what the answer is. And the people that are telling me they have the answer, I don't really believe that, you know, for instance, working all of that out in public is not necessarily the, the most useful thing to do for anyone, you know, whereas having spaces with trusted partners, that have different views that I can have that conversation with and start to exercise different muscles and, and start to go like, okay, so that's, that's a real pitfall in my thinking over there, but this is actually onto something. This is something important. Like I need those private spaces to, to flex those more sensitive muscles for a bit. And then, then when I come back into the public space, it's like, Oh, okay. I figured this little piece out or like I learned this thing from this other person. Yeah. And the, to play devil's advocate with that idea, I feel like there is a lack of vulnerability in the not knowing this. Like there is probably some value in being public in your inquiry there, because I think that there are so many people who are probably about my age who are afraid to question the narrative that is so vehemently espoused. Um, and so instead of letting themselves be in inquiry, they just swallow it or shut up. Those are kind of like the only options after that. Yeah. And yeah. so there's probably, that's probably like a double edged sword there. Um, What's another thing for the communication practice? Like my my practice of, um, especially when I joined the Occupy movement, and we basically had a hundred strangers sitting in a circle and trying to make sense of the world together and make decisions together and stuff. I really learned from that practice. Like there are some ways of expressing myself which tend to like trigger all kinds of drama and conflict, and there's other ways of expressing myself where people can actually hear me. Like if I'm a bit more considerate about how I express myself, and that's not censorship. You know, that's not like oh, I didn't get to express myself. It's like, no, I'm just taking a bit of consideration of like really not just making random assertions about how the world is, but sticking within my own subjective experience and being considerate of others and saying like, this is just how I'm thinking about it. Or, you know, like making space for other people to not agree with you. And you can learn sort of communication forms that enable more exploratory thinking to happen in public. Yeah. And considering and just sticking with I is a good one. <laughs> yeah, Totally. And just considering your audience, right? If our, you know, we have to consider efficacy in what we're trying to communicate. And I think that's been a pitfall for me. I feel like I'm a kind of a cage shaker in general. Yeah. Um, I'm rebellious and confrontational. And I'm learning how to take the meat of what is what I'm rebelling for and confronting against 
and shaping it, crafting it into some way that's actually effective, that is communicative instead of rabble rousing. I think that's a big practice in this podcast in general. And my, mm. I think that the podcast format is a really good way for that because it's like 160 characters. You can definitely put caps lock and a lot of exclamation points, but like to monologue for 45 minutes about a more nuanced idea at length kind of really susses out the privilege or the arrogance or the ignorance of any subject, you know? Mm. Mm. I'm also just thinking that, um, you know, nonviolent communication as a, as a methodology is pretty handy as well. So like, um, if there's a situation where you feel like you want to be rattling the cages because it's like, ah, you know, I need to rebel. This is unfair. I'm being censored or something. Like if you can frame that in nonviolent communication terms of like, I'm feeling this way, like this is the emotion that I'm currently experiencing because I need X, you know, if I had this, then I wouldn't feel it that way anymore. And then, and my request is why, you know, like if you can use that kind of format to express yourself, like it's a very well-tested method for being able to convey something that could be explosive, but doing it in a way where it's more likely to be heard. And it starts from that feeling point, you know, where you're actually disclosing your vulnerability of like, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling like I'm not being heard. I'm feeling alone, you know, whatever. Um, That puts you in a, in a somewhat submissive position rather than in this like domineering sort of I'm the boss and I demand that things must change kind of position. Yeah. Nonviolent communication is definitely a incredibly useful tool for everything. That's Marshall Rosenberg. Mm. Um, And I think that even just like talking to Sarah Ness, I think that a lot of the authentic relating, um, circling, genuine listening, all of these things are pretty well encapsulated into his framework of nonviolent communication. So I think that that's a really good resource for people if they're looking into how to communicate better. And I think that that's just integral in community building and relationship building and all of this stuff. This is like the thread that I keep saying is like going through all these different conversations, this relational thread and I had a, I went on a DMT journey a week ago and I had this just like visceral epiphany that I only exist in relation to other things and other people. Mm-hmm. And it was like the visual experience was like, there was like some kind of like floating rod that was like, connected equidistantly from all these other rods and it was like they were kind of glowing and i was like oh that's me i'm like one of those rods and then there's alicia my girlfriend she's another rod and there's like um and yeah that's kind of a thread that's been going through my thinking a lot lately is that Mm. we are like even existentially we are kind of in a way you could think of ourselves our existence as relationship yeah which is really interesting and it's like you know with your thing about being being in the mountains like when you're in a dangerous situation and you're roped together it's like you know the relationship suddenly is really obvious and you know that you're kind of depending on each other um to survive 
And just because you've come off the mountain doesn't mean the rope's gone. It's like we are roped together. This is your discovery, right? With the local uh-huh. neighborhood. It's like if the food supplies run out or the gas supply or whatever, and like suddenly you realize all these ropes around you, we are chained to each other and better to be conscious of that and like attend to the, the make sure they're not fraying, you know, like make sure that there's enough stretch in them and all that sort of thing before yeah. you, before you really need it. Yeah. What's the quality of your rope and how well is your gear placed in the mountain? Yeah. That's funny. I feel like the, the experience that comes up for me there is recently when my Italian house guest friend was here, we went rock climbing and there's this like really long first pitch that's super hard right off of the ground and the belay station is totally out of view. And so your buddy goes, climbs up and disappears. And then all of a sudden like the rope, starts like get, getting tugged on and he yells at you and you're like, you're kind of, you know, then you start climbing and you like, you can't see your friend. You can't mm. really hear him. Like your communication is really distant. Like you can only scream and then the screaming, you can only like half or a third understand what they're yelling. And only because there's context, do you like understand that he's like at the play station? Okay. Now like you let the rope out and, And then you start climbing and like right off of the ground, it's really hard. You like, you're really exposed because you're eight feet off the ground. And if you fell, you could actually hit the ground right there. Mm -hmm. And it's like that, that rope is such a metaphorical connection in interdependence. Yeah. And it's really, really obvious. It's really obvious. That is a beautiful part of some of these experiences in the mountains as our connections to each other become so incredibly obvious. I think that's a blessing in, in my upbringing in these things is my dependence is so clear to me. And you know, there's something else that, that was one of the threads of our last conversation and that's courage and I have been thinking about that a lot I have started on this podcast I have started to tell people hey support the podcast by subscribing and sharing and consider donating and also you can just encourage me at ariantheair at gmail.com like send me encouragement and like you saying that like it kind of made me realize how much I just like need that. Like I just Mm -hmm. literally, I need encouragement. And so I have made sure to like encourage the people that my friends that are like out there on pirate radio, like especially Peter today, I wrote him encouragement. I'm like, wow, dude, like you're killing it. Keep it, keep it going. And it made me kind of realize like that is a super power of mine. Like I am encouraging to a fault. Like I am encouraging to a level of like pushiness, right? And there have been <laughs> relationships in my life, especially in the mountains, especially with high lines that are like, like Rich, you don't even know what you're capable of, but like come on out into the mountains and like, I'll set an example for you and then I'll use the most convincing language I can come up with to convince you that you are superhuman yourself and are on your way to walking across some little ribbon in the sky. And it's like, 
I don't know. I guess just the realization that I've really been like, I'm super practiced in that. Yeah. I'm really super practiced in encouragement. And I've also, it's made it really clear how much I need that. And that's like, it's yeah. definitely become more obvious to me. So for me, I'm one of these people that is super sensitive to coercion and domination and that extends to persuasion. Um, and so like there's an art form to encouraging me in a way where I don't feel like you're, yeah, that you're coercing me, you know, that, that you're trying to force me to do something against my will, but that you're really um, encouraging and celebrating my agency. You're like, you can do this, you know, not like, you know, like a sim very simple example is someone watches a great film and then they go, Rich, you've got to watch this film. You've really got to watch this film. I would just be like, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> but, if, if, if <laughs> but if instead they can say like, I watched this film, Rich, and it was amazing and it made me think of you in such and such a way and I think you would really love it. You know, it's a completely different response that the way that lands for me is like completely, completely different. Like where it's, um, they are honoring my right to choose and saying like, from what I know of you, I'm sure that this would, you know, I think you'd really love it. And I hope you choose to do it, you know, but the, the, the choice thing is yours. And I'm, I'm oversensitive to that, but I wonder if other people might also, you know, like if there's ways that you can tune your encouragement with people where it's like, um, where they get to own the decision, you know, like it's theirs and, and they're not doing it because it was your idea, you know, because you gave them so much um, of, a, of a push to do it but you're just pouring all the love and like, yeah, I got you. This we, we, We'll do this together. And you know, but yeah, totally. Have you ever read the book power versus force by David R. Hawkins? No, you got to do it, rich. You got to do it. You, you just have to do it. Rich, uh, do it. Honest. Come on. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> in, in the book, he talks about like, there's a difference between power and force. Force is like coercion and power is like, um, inspiration. And mm. he also talks about the idea that if you put some kind of expectation behind something that people will just naturally push against it, even subconsciously, they don't even know why they're yeah. pushing against something. But it's like, if someone says, Rich, you have to watch this, you, ha you have to watch this. And you're like, mm, no, I don't even, that sounds like something typically I would be really into, but just how you're presenting it to me, I'm, I'm resistant to it. <laughs> and like the point is kind of like if, um, forces oppose, right? Like if you put a force on something, then it's either going to move or there's a force that's going to come back to it. And mm. power just is. And so, yeah, I think that, and you see this message even in the work of like mantra meditations and like Joe Dispenza's books talk about this a lot. The idea of like coming up with an idea for the future that you want to manifest into your life and you go through the meditative experience of bringing the feeling of accomplishment into your body and really being with what it would feel like to have achieved that and then letting it go, letting go of the attachment to that actually coming into physical reality 
is what allows it to come into physical reality. Um, so yeah, I think there's something to that. There's this healthy, you can set goals, but being detached from their manifestation in physical reality is, a, I think, an integral part of getting rich to watch the movie. <laughs> well, it makes me curious about your, um, your goals, you know, like with the veggie box, um, doing these neighborhood gardens. Um, do you have a sense of what you're hoping to accomplish and like what might be in the way? Well, I think I just want to be a messiah, a zucchini messiah, I think, mm. really. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you need to stop trimming your beard. Tomato savior. <laughs> no, honestly, what, what do I want to accomplish with the veggie box? I think there's an element to... I'll give you an example. So... I have these like mountain bike trails that kind of go through town and I've been riding on them. And since the coronavirus, like I found these like little mobiles that people have made out of branches and fishing line and pennies. And there's like along the trail, there's like six of them. And I'm like, mm -hmm. people have just like kind of beautified. And mm -hmm. I see like sidewalk chalk and I see people are like writing on poster paper and putting them in their second story windows, like, thank you, healthcare workers. And we got this. And, you know, someone put up a banner over the overpass the other day over the highway that says, we will get through this. Hmm. And I'm just like, Oh, there's like a, there's like a beautification and there's like, um, it's like a tactile experience of like support, really. It's like mm. seeing examples of support in our physical environment that we're like, oh, like someone went through the effort of rounding up some scrap two by fours and cedar planks and then getting his landscaping buddy to get a load of dirt and dumping it into the box. And then he put starts in it and knocked on my door and said that the kale is mine to take care of and to eat. Um, I'm also just kind of inspired by this, like a documentary, this living the change, these permaculturalists, this, so I'm not exactly sure what my goal is. I don't really know what my outcome is, but I definitely know, or I have a sense, I have this idea that, that being more connected to the things that we eat is like a step in the right direction, right? Like <clears throat> I, for a while I had been so curious. I'm like, why the fuck is toilet paper the thing that people have bought out of? Like of all the things, like why is toilet paper the thing? And the question got put to Zach Stein the other day. And Zach said, he said, well, first of all, I'm not exactly sure, but my intuition is that it has something to do with our root chakra like our most basic needs hmm. as well as the things that we don't want other people to see. And I was like, Whoa, dude, that is <laughs> such a crazy, like that just totally paints the whole, like buying the stores out of toilet paper in such a different light from, you know, like from 
all these idiots, right? All these scared idiots who go to the store and hoard to like, oh my God, there's like people who are afraid. Like there's literally people who are afraid of their most basic needs being met and they have shame around their bodily function. They have shame around their own shit. And it's like, that really kind of repainted the whole thing for me. So I'm not sure what the, what the veggie garden thing is, but I just also, I just want, like, there's gotta be something that I can contribute. And it's also a skill set that I absolutely don't have. Like I'll send you a picture. I'll send you a picture of this first planter box that I made. It's just wonky and sideways and it looks like it's from the Shire, but it's like going to totally work and it's hilarious. And it's like a skill set that I don't have that I'm building. And it's also like relationships and, I, I mean, know. if it's too fancy, it won't work. Totally. You know, if it looks like it was done by a professional, people will just take it for granted and think, oh, yeah, maybe the municipality took care of that or something. <laughs> yeah, it's got to totally. look janky and homemade. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there's also just like so much used space. I also see the wasteful, like we all have fucking yards. And like I work at home. So in the summer, I'm just incessantly incessantly intruded on my thin walled little duplex by a 46 horsepower lawnmower going through my yard and all all of these different duplexes have different property managements so it's basically monday through friday nine to five there's a fucking lawnmower a weed whacker a leaf blower something that's that's going on in my street that is burning fossil fuels to maintain yards that people don't even fucking lay on. It's just crazy to me. It's crazy. And there's gotta be a better way. Like this whole, the whole exercise of living amidst the coronavirus is to realize that we're in a time between worlds and begin seeing the old world and designing the new one. What is important? What do we spend our resources on? What do we spend our time doing? Are we going to pay landscaping companies $150 a month or $200 a month to mow these lawns and fertilize them? Or could we pay them the same exact money to maintain food forests in our front yard that would literally make food free? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know what my goal is here, but I, there's a number of different threads that all seem to kind of intersect with mm. the, I, and I think there's also probably my own root chakra here. That's like, feed me. Like I love gardening. Like I've grown weed for a number of summers and just like watching things grow is a really beautiful exercise of like, kind of like connectedness with just the phantasmagoric, universe and just how astounding it is that you put a fucking seed in the ground and it just like all of the intelligence of that thing is just in there and it just does it it does like you don't have to tell it it's crazy you can even fuck it up you forget to water it and it's like no i'm not gonna die you can't stop me it's just amazing man fuck life is good if you pay attention to the right thing so i mean this is your seed intelligence too though you know like doing the 
the first step in the right direction rather than getting too hung up on the like what's the big long-term change the world vision but just like just heading in a direction that feels like yeah it seems more or less right i'll do it see what i learn then do the next step and you know maybe it'll go somewhere maybe it won't like that's one of the aspects that i feel um that i want to encourage more of you know to see people just just do a little thing just do yeah. a little diy a little mm. a little experiment and see what you learn from it and don't get too hung up about doing it perfect or like having the most ambitious possible dream or something like that, you know? Yeah. And I feel from, I feel encouraged from you from our last conversation, just even illuminating my own desire to scale Mm. and instead just being like, what can I do right here? That's like Mm. my yard, the neighbor's yard and the mailbox. So When you were describing this, um, all the weed whackers and lawnmowers and stuff, it reminded me I want to give voice to a vision um, because that might be one way to help them come true, which is there has been some talk in my circles for the last decade or so about having a, like a basically transforming our whole way of living so we have a carbon neutral society and there's you know some momentum behind that idea. But while we're at it, I really want to make a sonically neutral society as well, where you can expect that most of the time it's quiet. And occasionally, you know, like if you're having a party or something, then great, let's, let's, let's enjoy the sounds. But most of the time I'd like it if the default was just like, we just have quiet, you know, like we learn how to do construction. We learn how to do transport. We learn how to do the basic things that we need to make things work without making a huge amount of sonic pollution. And I've been experiencing that the last couple of weeks, you know, it's like this place has gotten really, really quiet. Mm. They even completely stopped the trains for a while. Now they're running a little bit, but like having this like, and just hear myself think, you know, Mm. I can hear the birds and listen to all the different kinds of birds as they're coming in because it's springtime. Like it's a real gift and it should be, it should be a normal everyday thing that everyone gets to enjoy. I agree. And that's something that, my best friend, Adam Craig, he's an Olympian mountain biker and a rally race car driver. And like, he's from Maine, he's from rural Maine. And he, his biggest pet peeve are the guys who lift their big giant diesel pickups and take the muffler off of them so that they're just extremely loud, produce 20% more power, blow black smoke, and they drive them around by themselves to their like office jobs. <laughs> it's like the trucks are just caught. Con- they're like capable of towing like million pounds and they're just constantly like have just two pairs of Nikes in the bed of it. It's like, uh, that's kind of one of his sticks. And I think that, you know, he likes to say that those people didn't have enough attention as children and are now in their adulthood, just screaming for attention on the roadways. Mm-hmm which I think is a really potentially potentially enlightening and also just kind of a funny way to uh, make fun of them for having mommy issues in their big giant trucks. Um, but I think that in general, what you're talking about this, like this sonically neutral society, I think it comes from just a, general unawareness we get desensitized to just all this bullshit noise pollution and light pollution is another thing like here in duplex topia where i live 
it's like people leave their lights on all night long. And it's like everyone around me has their blinds drawn just constantly because they're trying to control their own light environment that they can't control their neighbors. And no one has a sense of working together on this, which is frustrating. But I think that the sonically neutral society, it is the noise and the light are a kind of pollution. And there has to be some kind of level of awareness that even brings us to the concept of pollution that is not material so that we can begin to, to understand that. And I think that most people don't understand the connection between their nervous system and their environment. Mm -hmm. They have never given enough credence to the idea that the lawnmowers put them on edge. That the sound of the highway and people stepping on the gas pedal more than they should puts them on edge and it aggravates them even slightly. Mm -hmm. This is a reality that iterates and stacks over time. And I think that there is a unique culture here in America that is so individualistic and we have the culture of especially automobiles, like automobile culture in America, like automobiles and America are just like enmeshed and automobiles are historically likely the greatest source of freedom that humanity has ever known. Like the ability to put a key in something that's just sitting there in the driveway waiting for you that can take you anywhere is like, it, it's mind boggling. And I just appreciate it every single time I start my pickup truck and drive to wherever I'm going with my, all my toys in the back. Right? Like it's like the best, it is the fucking best, but the conversation of where does your freedom blend into other people's neurological health is yeah. something that's totally lost on America. And it's like, how does the way you drive affect how many smiles are at the grocery store? Like literally, like you walk into the grocery store, you get out of your big diesel truck that you just did six burnouts on the way there. You get in the grocery store and you're like, oh, people are really frowny right now. Like, what's the stick up all these people's ass? And you're like, oh, it's the big diesel trucks that keep burning out in front of their house. You're like, whoa. Yeah, it's just, we are just interconnected in so many different ways. And it's like, I'm so with you. Uh, and I feel like the, the, noise neutral society is interesting and I don't know. I almost want to say reductive because I feel like it's like all of the ways that we pollute each other's environments unconsciously mm. are like, uh, kind of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Rich, what time is it in Italy right now? It's 7.30. It's what they call beer o'clock. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have that time here in Bend, Oregon, too. A little bit oh, different really? kind of beer. Mm. Yeah. A little bit different kind of beer here. 
But dude, <laughs> stoked to talk to you again. I'm glad we're connected. Pleasure. Yeah, let's keep me too. Let's keep this going. Intellectual brothers in arms. Even if we never get to exchange pheromones. Ah, uh, we will. Don't worry about that. Ah, uh, we will. <laughs> we will. We'll stall. I'll be back to jet setting here in no time. With the electric jets and the yeah, jet setting quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's crazy. It's like uh, here in Bend, we live like L.A. to Vancouver. LA to Portland. Mm. Uh, it flies right over our heads. Mm. We fl- you know, uh, I'm also a big fan of bush planes that fly a lot lower. Don't have any mufflers. So it's like, it's kind of a toss up. And I, I, I don't think that it's a total, I don't think it's a zero sum game because I think there is so much to be benefited. Like mm. my V8 truck, like enriches my life and gives resilience to my community. Like when I load it full of dirt and lumber and tools, and I always drive around with jumper cables and tools and a jack and all this stuff that like, I love changing people's tires and that's all kinds of, I try to make myself useful whenever I can, if I'm going to lug around extra shit, you know? So, um, there is a, a benefit to all of it and there's benefit to small light aircraft and there's a benefit to all of this stuff. So at some